welcome to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast, conversations with today's top ministry leaders to help you lead better every day. And now, podcasting from the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center in Chicagoland, here are your hosts, Ed Stetzer and Daniel Yang. Welcome to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast, where we're helping Christian leaders navigate and lead through the cultural issues of our day. My name's Daniel Yang, the director of the Church Multiplication Institute, and today I think you're going to enjoy a conversation with Dr. Holly Catterton-Allen. Holly is Professor of Family Studies and Christian Ministries at Lipscomb University in Nashville, Tennessee, where her areas of interest include children's spiritual formation and intergenerational ministry. From 2015 to 2021, she chaired the Intergenerate Conference, as well as the Children's Spirituality Summit. Her newest book is entitled Forming Resilient Children, The Role of Spiritual Formation for Healthy Development. But before we hear from Holly, let's go to Editor-in-Chief of Outreach Magazine and the Executive Director of the Wheaton College, Billy Graham Center, Ed Stetzer. How long have I been the Editor-in-Chief of Outreach Magazine? It's like all new news to me. And so did you know, have you, there's a Children's Spirituality Summit. You see, I didn't know there was a Jewish. We should go to that. That would be awesome. Um, so, uh, So good, important conversation today because... Uh, a lot of people having questions, and we're going to take these questions from different angles. Again, it's the Church Leaders podcast, so we're going to talk about you as a church leader and your own children, uh, which I will tell you that I and Daniel are still raising our children, so we um, we speak from humble places, um, and so we're still learning on that journey. Uh, but then there's that. And then we're going to talk some about what that looks like in the life of your church. I want to encourage you to get Forming Resilient Children, the role of spiritual formation for healthy development as well. And as always, if you don't mind, leave a review for us wherever you download your podcast. So, okay, back to the book, to the topic, to the conversation. Holly, thank you for joining us. You write, children have an innate, God-bestowed spirituality that is their greatest source of resilience Interesting beginning. Uh, what is, in children's spirituality do we need to consider, and what are misconceptions maybe Christians have of it as well? We often have not had a good definition of what we mean by children's spirituality, and that's one of the most important things that I do in the book is try to outline what do, what do we mean. I would say basically and very simply that children are born as spiritual beings. They are created in the image of God, and they are endowed from birth with the capacity to relate with others, with God, and with themselves. Uh, there's also another piece in a lot of definitions that say the child-world relationship is also very important, and I think it is. But I wanted to draw directly from the first and second commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And there's the implication in here that we can relate this way, we can relate with others, and there is a child-self or a person-self relationship. Uh, what have we missed in Christianity? There are several aspects, a couple I mentioned in the book, that particularly if you're in a believer's church tradition, the one that uh, would say that children or teens, when they can speak and understand and believe, they can be saved or they can be baptized. They can ask Jesus in their heart. We've had an ambiguous theology of what we think of children before that time. We've not articulated that well in some of our traditions. And even in traditions that practice infant baptism, there are days or weeks or months before a child is baptized. Where is that child at that time? If we say they're not spiritual beings, then how can we nurture them spiritually if they're not already spiritual? So I would maintain that children are spiritual because they're created by God um, as spiritual beings. All around the world, all children are spiritual. And they have the capacity to look inside themselves to say, I am an I. 
I am not a you. I'm different from you. I have needs. I have desires. And uh, they relate to others. We see this even in the newest newborn, that they are seeking the face, seeking touch, seeking the breast. They're seeking people around them. And I would say that we can't document this in, in early newborns, that the capacity to relate to God is also there. They're not able to articulate it, but it is there. Yeah, the language that we use in, for those who are listening, we uh, we talk about pedo Baptist and credo Baptist. So pedo uh, yes. child baby baptism and credo belief. So you were talking mm-hmm. about believing tradition. So uh, I would say that most of the conversations that I think I've heard have been in and around that like our, they might say my spiritual journey began and they mean the day when they trusted and followed Christ. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I loved, I worked at Lifeway for a decade there in Nashville. We are Nashville connection as well. Um, mm-hmm. And I love that they challenged me in our children's uh, ministry area that, you know, there's like years in, even in a credo uh, Baptist tradition, there's years of questions about spiritual development before somebody is going to do that. And so you're helping us to think again, the book is forming resilient children. So um, how should we, cause we're going to talk about the pro, you know, how we get there, but how should we think, what, what do we call for those of us? And again, not everyone listen podcasts is in a credo Baptist tradition. You are, and I am, um, what do, what do we think of that? What are we, are we forming before new life in Christ and conversion? I mean, clearly we are. How do we think, think more about that. And then we'll come back to some of these questions of resilience. So the how piece or are we, and we are, whether we name it that or not, we are forming our, all children everywhere are being formed spiritually, maybe not in a positive way, but that we are being formed in that we are nurturing our children in their relationship with themselves and with others and with a transcendent other, even if, it is not Yahweh God. That is happening around the world that children are becoming aware of a transcendent other. They might not know the name yet. They might not have heard the name yet, but God indeed is seeking them. And I think they can be, that he can be found by them. That is always true. Uh, we do this in a multitude of ways. I think one of the gaps we have in Christianity is we've tended to equate um teaching children and nurturing them spiritually with learning information. And when I I have taught in children's ministry, since I was 11, I had my first little kindergarten class. And my goal at that time, and for the next 20 years or so, was uh, I wanted them to know the Bible, and I wanted them to know how to live. In the last 20 years or so, I've been changing that. I want them to know God. I want them to know God. Now, I still teach the Bible. I still teach the stories. But my goal is different. And even little children, little children can know that there is a God who exists, who loves them, who cares about them, who is in the business of forming and uh, transforming and bringing about justice and uh, restoring and healing. And so when you tell the stories, you don't just say, how many lepers did he heal? How many lepers came back and said, thank you? And of course, they can all say 10 and then they can say one. And we think our goal is, okay, we've now taught them that you need to say thank you. That is not the goal of this story. The goal is, who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus who saw these men and had mercy upon them and healed them, even though he knew that only one was at at that moment going to come back and say thank you. He wasn't doing it to make sure they said thank you. He was doing it because he cared about them. That we can teach at four, at three, at six, at 20, at 50. So who is this God in these stories? Our questions change so that we're moving away from how many sons did he have 
to um, how did they follow God closely? Uh, and who is this God they followed? He's the God who called them. Uh, it's it's entirely changed what I do with children, and that's the goal to me. Yeah, it, it resonates with me. I, I still have a, a I have a four year old daughter, and uh, but let's 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 just take a moment. The span of your children. That's true. So because you actually went through all their age ranges just a second. Ago. <laughs> this is like Fifty at one point. So I've got five children. The oldest is twenty one. The youngest is four. Wow. And uh, what resonates about that statement you just made is that my, my wife just recovered from COVID. And uh, mm-hmm. when the day that my wife tested negative, uh, my daughter, uh, she said, oh, Jesus healed money. And uh, and, so, and that's, you know, I, I believe that's true. But also it's developing that connection between healing, resiliency and spirituality. And I mean, that's really what your book is about. Uh, can you help us understand, like, what's your definition of a resilience? And then what's the relationship between resilience and spirituality? I looked quite a bit at all the resilience literature. I had been teaching a course on nurturing children spiritually for years. And for uh, several years, we were working with specialized populations. The first year here at Lipscomb, uh, we worked with children whose parents are incarcerated. So I looked at the resilience literature about children whose parents are incarcerated. The next year we worked with children who were refugees and I began looking at that literature. And then we worked in a situation where these children were all in in generational poverty. It was an area of town that uh, was just a lower socioeconomic level. I looked at poverty and resilience and I began to realize that the spirituality literature and the resilience literature overlap incredibly. And something I noticed in the resilience literature was spirituality. Now they didn't always call it that, they um, sometimes they would call it faith or belief in a transcendent other or hope or the belief that life has meaning. And sometimes they would call it spirituality. But pretty much all the literature I looked at had a fairly simple definition for resilience, something like, um, I guess it would be the process of adapting well um, in the face of adversity or trauma or hardship or suffering or deep sources of stress. So, what does that mean, adapting well? Well, a child who's adapting well is, you know, generally doing well in school, getting along with other people, following social guidelines, um, just following all those basic developmental things. Children who are not doing well, who are not exhibiting resilience, then would be doing having poor performance in school. They're um, aggressive. They may have mental issues of depression or aggression. Um, mostly you can tell with the loners and the kids who don't interact with other kids, then it may not be that they've suffered a great trauma, but something's not going well. And those are some of the signs that we look for. Okay. So um, the assumption is often, we have a colleague here at Wheaton that leads the Humanitarian Disaster Institute. And when he's talking about resilience and spirituality, he's written on this, um, uh, Jamie Aiton and their whole team does a great job, but there is often a connection to traumatic events. Uh, But part of what your book does is also talks about the need for resilience uh, well, in and out of traumatic events as well, because, you know, so so pastors and church leaders, both with their own children, they have children and in the church that they lead are going to need to build resilience. So how then do you describe and maybe define uh, resilience broadly, not just in the response to traumatic events, though that's important, too? Well, it's the ability. They always define it in light of. And all the studies are looking at children, populations of children who have gone through something similar. One of the first studies looked at several hundred children who were being raised in a situation in Hawaii, who it was a lower socioeconomic level, a lot of um, alcoholism, a lot of just 
difficulties. And they followed these children over the decades. And they spent the first 10 years looking at what they were seeing in the children and, and documenting the problems they were having. And after about 10 years, they said, oh, wait, about two thirds of the kids are exhibiting these things. Why don't we look at the third of the kids who seem to be flourishing? So uh, resilience is typically defined in light of what is happening in the children. So when you face adversity uh, and you uh, manage to come out on the other side, uh, we don't know if someone's resilient until they, you know, to say, I have resilient children. When you go, well, what, what have they been through? Oh, nothing. We've had a wonderful life. There's never been anything. Well, how do you know they're resilient? It's hard to define resilience unless they're, they've hit some kind of wall. And it may not be, and when I was writing this book and I'm anticipating perhaps another question, well, then why do we need to worry about resilience until kids hit, hit a wall? Well, the fact is, we're going to all hit walls. And in fact, almost all children have, we might not have necessarily seen it or known about it. Most children, most children have not been trafficked. They have not been child soldiers. They've not been in a life-threatening situation like a tornado or a hurricane. Uh, but most children have at some time been bullied. Um, they've failed a test. They've been unfriended, whether online or just somebody kind of didn't invite them to the party. Um, they have felt hurt in situations. They may have a chronic illness like asthma. Now you think, well, that's not life-threatening, but it, it's ongoing and it's problematic. And then we know lots of kids whose parents are divorced. That is adversity. That's hardship. And that's common. That's common. They may lose a grandparent. Um, they may lose a sibling. So they may not themselves have gone through something, but uh, someone close to them suffering. And when I wrote in the book early on when I was writing it, I said there are basically two kinds of kids that we're talking about, kids who've already hit something hard and we can sort of evaluate if they're resilient or not or what kind of resilience issues they're having. And then kids who had pretty much, you know, good enough parents, good enough schools, good enough life, good enough health. And it's kind of hard to tell. But you know what's happened since I wrote that first part? COVID. All children everywhere now have hit something. Now, they may not have had a parent who died or a grandparent who died, although 140,000 children in the United States lost a parent to COVID, which is shocking to me. But their school closed down. They had a different teacher. They had to do school online. The malls were closed. The church churches were closed. They didn't get to do peewee baseball, whatever. Those are smaller, perhaps, um, hardships, but they're hardships. And so all children now have faced some hardship. And we are seeing, even in our children, some of the um, issues that come when hardship comes to a whole population. Our children have had a lot more mental issues since COVID, and we know this as a nation. So these were hidden things. We didn't know if our children were going to be resilient or not, and many of our children are, but they, this may have been the first thing that, that hit. You know, some of our seniors in high school. Did you have a senior in high school during this? Daniel? Oh, yeah. Huge. No prom, no graduation. I mean, all those markers. And then they came to college and guess what? It was online. So those were huge things for them. And they're juniors now. I have them. And I've been watching them go through the fallout from all of that. And it's it's been hard. Um, so all of our kids now have had hit some walls. Now, we've collectively experienced this. It is interesting to me that and your book is timely uh, in the conference. The book, by the way, is Forming Resilient Children, The Role of Spiritual Formation for Healthy Development. So it is interesting to me that this seems to be resilient spiritual formation of children. 
things come in waves and people are talking about this a lot. I spoke at the Awana Global Forum and the theme was uh, building resilient disciples. There's a, they have a book called Resilient Child Discipleship for a Fearless Future of the Church, Valerie Bell, yes. uh, and who's a friend and an author. And, and your book comes along and others have pointed to this issue that um, it may be a harder, harsher world that we're going into. Maybe that's part of it. I don't know. Yeah. But either way, we've got to ask the question, uh, not uh, do they need resilience, but how do we begin to help them have that resilience? So let's make that transition and let's talk about some of the ways. And I'll just, I'll just throw it to you. Um, how might we begin to see um, the resilient spiritual formation of children? What are practices as churches and as pastors and church leaders that we should be engaging in? Well, first of all, the broadening of the understanding so that if when I ask a parent, you know, how are you nurturing your child spiritually? They, they give me this deer in the headlights look and I read him a story at night and we pray and I don't know what else I'm going to take him to church but so much of what we do with our children when you are reading a book to a child and you say who are you in this story oh would you tell me why you're that person and they reveal things to you about themselves you are nurturing that child others but also that child self relationship Something as simple as that, starting when they're young and they begin to see themselves not only in the stories, any story that you read. I'm talking A Splendid Friend Indeed or Goodnight Moon or um, any of the ordinary children's books that you read. What, or what, what is your favorite page and why? Why? Because it reveals them to you. They eventually may say, what's your favorite page or who are you in the story? And it reveals you to them. So amazing things happen in that simple, simple place. But we can also do this in our circumstances in our churches when I, my world has been a lot in children's ministry. And um, as you teach the stories, who are you in the story? I am amazed at how many children in scripture faced adversity, grew up without their parents, hard things happened. And when you ask, who are you in this story? They have something to say or to draw. They may not want to share it in the class, but if you give space for them to draw important things happen. We have been in our children's ministries and in our homes, kept, we've kept our children busy, 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 busy all the time. But if we create spaces of stillness as we need as adults to enter that space with God and to say, who am I, Lord? Who are you, Lord? Children need that space as well. So moving away from a frenetic form of nurturing. I went through all the phases. I've been in children's ministries, like I said, since I was 11. And I went through all the phases. Educational psychology was my master's area. So when uh, learning centers came in, I put them in my Sunday school classroom. When all the bells and whistles, when puppets came in, I did all of that. And I don't think it was terrible, but I kept them very busy going from center to center to center to center. I didn't leave space for them to respond. Uh, when you teach the story of um, the child that Naaman took into slavery, his armies took her into slavery. She's the one you know, who told him about when he got leprosy about the one who could heal him. What was going on in her mind? How would you have felt? Very, very likely her parents were killed or taken into slavery somewhere else. She was alone, away from her people, away from her family. It's amazing how children will take that story and they will identify with some piece of her life. And you think, well, none of our children have been taken into slavery. But they hear something that says, I am like this little girl. And, you know, what prompted her to help Naaman? Amazing things happen in our children when we give them space to listen, 
uh, to the stories. These are stories about God. A good question to ask is, what is God doing in this story? So that when we teach the Esther story, it's not about how God used her beauty for good things. Yes, he did. What is God doing in this story? Where was God? What was Esther saying to God as she went to the king? What, God, what was God saying to Esther? Those are wonderful, deep, enriching, relational questions rather than the details of a story. The brilliance of Fred Rogers, I think, was he was able to help oh, children Fred Rogers. name. You're too young. No, I watched him. Really? <laughs> yeah, I did. Okay. I did. Okay. He but basically he... raised me in a very tumultuous and turbulent time. I'd rush home, you know, broken family, yeah. you know, alcohol, that kind of stuff. And Mr. Rogers was yeah. so key. Yeah. Well, because he, yes. helped, he helped young people name <clears throat> their emotions that we regulated to, you know, just these are adult things. But no, like children experience it and he normalized it for them. And you know, um, Holly, in, in, in our churches, like uh, children's spaces have tended to be, you know, uh, content spaces or classrooms. Mm -hmm. And then when they graduate into youth, you know, it's kind of places of entertainment or um, right. high engagement with activity. Mm -hmm. But I also hear you saying that we need to create spaces in our church where they can become more self-aware and maybe be able to understand their situation and the dynamics around them. How would you advise pastors and church leaders uh, to reimagine their Sunday school classrooms, their small groups, their youth groups to become these, these spaces where kids can become more aware? Yes, I would move to a different paradigm. We've had the cognitive approach and the entertainment approach, and we put those together. Um, and so it's, sometimes it's a little more entertainment oriented, even in children's areas, and sometimes it's more just learn the information. I would add a third piece, and I would call this the contemplative place. And you don't have to just overhaul the whole thing, but we can integrate it. So as I was saying about the the good shepherd and the lost sheep, have you ever been lost? Have you ever been found? Those are deep and rich questions that we take from that and giving children time to draw and respond. Um, godly play is something that I would recommend for any church anywhere as a second uh, approach, whatever you're doing on your typical Sunday morning, maybe on your Wednesday night, could you do this? Or for six weeks of the year or once a month, take a godly play approach. It's a story in a box and you tell the story with uh, visuals and mm, textured uh, props and you tell the story. And then at the end, you ask several wondering questions. I wonder who you are in this story. What God was doing. Uh, in the man, um, you know, the, the priest and the Levite who walked down the road and passed by on the other side, you know, you think, I wonder if God helped them see later. Because sometimes we just kind of put them off in the bin. They're just the terrible guys in the story. But what else might have happened in their life to help them be more attuned to the person who is hurt and had everything taken from him and was left to die by the side of the road? Um, you know, what prompted the, the Samaritan to care for him? Those kinds of questions that scripture wouldn't necessarily give a particular answer to, but it opens them up to what God is doing in them and in others. We've tended to ask for church answers, Bible answers that just say what happened in this story. And it shuts down what God did then and what he's doing now. And that's what we're aiming to work. Not just who was God then, but who is God now. So ways to do that, ways to do that would be ways to open up to children what God is doing now. So always ask that question. Who is God in this story? What is he doing? Yeah, I, I found that, um, and again, I was so unaware of these things. And again, I keep coming back to, I only learned about these things when I was probably more at Lifeway. 
because we, we launched this curriculum called the Gospel Project, and all these people mm-hmm. kept talking about pedagogically appropriate and age-appropriate mm-hmm. resources. And I'm like, well, just tell kids Bible stories. And, you know, my, my own lack of awareness was was on display. But I learned a lot mm-hmm. and 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 see that, you know, and so I, I, let me just say for their listeners, I would encourage you to, if you're a pastor of a, even a small church, mid-sized church, and uh, there are people who are thinking through a lot of these things that are helping creating resources. I have learned the value of resources from people who understand pedagogy really makes a difference. So the part of your pointing at too is that. Uh, but you also talk some in the book about the value of intergenerational experience in the church when it comes to nurturing children. So because um, I think that's a that's a point of encouragement that this is not just these kids figuring out that on their own. But so let me let me just put a marker in. You need to rely on some people who've thought through age appropriateness when you are engaging children. That's part of what you're getting at. But talk to us about the intergenerational experiences part that you talk about in the book. Well, because uh, I think we've leaned a little too far into the age appropriateness that we have allowed Piaget to be our basic theologian for us. And uh, yes. He said, three-year-olds can do this, six-year-olds can't do that. You know, that kind of thing. We, we kind of bought all that. I was I lived through that whole season and adopted it all, adapted it all. And I've had to kind of pull back from some of this because I don't think cognitive development is equal to spiritual development. And they are not doing the same thing. That as we grow spiritually, we can grow with people across all the ages. So I'm connecting that piece to the intergenerational piece. The life-changing part of my life happened in 19, in the mid-1990s when we were part of an intergenerational small group. We were in a church that was growing. We started with one intergenerational group, and by the time we left in four years, it was a church of about 700 people with 25 small groups. And every week we met together, and we prayed together, and we ate together, and we laughed together. We heard our stories. We blessed each other. We hoped together. We heard our fears. It was life-changing, not only for the adults, but certainly for the children. I began to see in those children uh, something I'd never seen in all my years in uh, children's ministry. They began to pray with and for their parents and other adults. They began to minister to their parents, to other adults, uh, in ways I just had not seen before. So something was happening. Something different happens when you're with people of different ages together And I needed to know the answer to that. And we left uh, that and I went to California and I began to pursue that question. That was my dissertation question. What is it about intergenerational settings that particularly and specifically nurture spiritual formation, not only in children and teens, but in all of us? So I spent four years studying that and I've spent the last 20 years on that. That's just what I've done. My dissertation came out in 2002. And for the last 20 years, that's been my question. And I've continued to pursue it. What happens is that you're with people who are further ahead of you on the spiritual journey, and they don't necessarily have to be older than you, uh, but they model for you, and you see what it looks like to be a Christ follower when you're 13 or 18 or 21 or 46 or 82. And if you are always with the four-year-olds, and when they turn five, then you're always with the five-year-olds, and when you're 13, you're always with the 13-year-olds, you don't have as many models around you for saying, what? What does it look like when I'm young and married and have little kids or when I'm old and dying? What does that mean? What does that look like? And in these intergenerational small groups, the children and the teens and the emerging adults, young adults, middle adults, and older adults were always with people who were growing and learning. We were growing spiritually. And it didn't matter what age you were. You received what you could receive and you incorporated it into your life. It was life-changing for me. And I'm most committed in my life to bringing the generations together. 
that gives my my elevator speech on intergenerational gatherings. Uh, there are other things that churches can do that are intergenerational. I would say intergenerational worship. You know, we've spent the last 30 years moving away from having all the generations together in our worship. And right now, this committee that we talked about earlier, the, the Lilly Grant on intergenerational worship in children. Um, okay. Yeah. We, we talked about a Lilly Grant on intergenerational worship in children. I'm thinking, this is incredible. This is wonderful. Why might we do that? What are we looking at? Why will this bless the children and everyone else who's there? What would that be like? How do we do that? Um, I think it's terribly important that children be present. And you think, well, yeah, but the sermon's way over their head. Much more happens during the sermon than three points in a poem. Uh, children, as you know, and as I know, can multitask. I remember hearing a little girl behind me. We had just studied that morning, uh, Lazarus being raised from the dead, and the sermon was about that. And she had been coloring and just doing different things. And she was five, and she looked up and said, he knows that story too. So she heard that, that went on while she was busily doing other things. But there are a lot, there's a lot more to be said about intergenerational worship. But that's something else that we as church leaders can say, how might we do that? Why might we do this? How might we do this? Mm-hmm. That's a great point. And I'm sure uh, our listeners, especially those who are pastors, um, they probably want to know um, what are better ways to integrate children into the worship gathering, the corporate worship gathering. And, uh, you know, so it's more than just a, a poem and maybe that children's moment. So, um, you know, as we're wrapping up here, Holly, um, can you give us some practical ideas for how pastors might better think about crafting a worship service so that it, it applies to, you know, all generations, but specifically it's meaningful to children? I guess I will have to answer the why before the how. Uh, the key why is that, I mean, I, I will never ever speak anywhere, anywhere when I talk about intergenerational anything without giving a why, because uh, people jump always to the how, which is important. But if you don't know why, then if the first how doesn't work and you say, oh, well, we're not going to do that here. But the why in this particular case is children belong with us. They are the body of Christ. And if they always know that when the church is gathered, they're somewhere else. They're going to be part of the body of Christ some other day, like when they're 15 or 21. Uh, And we've wondered why kids leave the church after they're 18. Well, if they've always been in children's church or youth, a youth worship, why would they be part of the body of Christ if they've not been up until then? So that's a huge why. We want them to belong. We want them to see this as their space. How can we do that? One of the things, a simple, simple thing is, we are delighted to have our new first graders with us this morning. How many of you are going to first grade this week? I mean, it says, oh, they know I'm here. Or that week in May, a lot of our seniors are graduating. If you're graduating, we'd love to see, stand up wherever you are, uh, you know, congratulate them. Or we have people going into middle school today. This is gonna happen this week. Uh, or next week, if you have different school systems in this in August or in September, whenever school start, we've got a bunch of middle schoolers. Let's pray for you today. I mean, middle school and what people don't need prayer in middle school. When will they need it? You know, this is the time. Uh, but welcome them literally, but welcome their gifts, not because they're cute. That distresses me when children sing a song. And say, oh, wasn't that cute? They have something in them that says things that we don't say. And we are listening for that. I just heard a story of um, the fifth grade class in another church, the children's minister had worked with them to lead the worship that day. 
and the fifth graders who were reading scripture, they had been taught how to read. This is to be enthusiastic. You are to live into this. This is God speaking. They were reading one of the Psalms. And he began reading after the third verse. He looked up and said, Miss Doreen, I think if we're reading scripture like that, maybe people should be listening like that. Oh, my goodness. He had looked out on these dead faces and he said, could we stand up? Can, can you listen to what I'm saying and respond? I mean, this 10-year-old said that. We would not accept that very well from a 30-year-old. But it was kind of amazing that this 10-year-old thought, we need to be acknowledging this is, is God's scripture. So use children in a way that acknowledges their gifts, that what they have is what they have to bring is as important as what the adults have to bring. The idea of mutuality and reciprocity are two key words to think, keep in mind. Reciprocity means that what you bring to the table is of is as important and is as weighty as what other people bring. And we've tended not to view children this way. That what we we call people to part of this because we have reciprocal gifts as weighty and as important as anyone else. And again, if you look up and you see people like you being part of the leadership, like leading in song or reading scripture, you say, I belong. We use this principle when we talk about um, intercultural things. We want all the faces there, on all the cultures there. And all the cultures include the generational cultures. Uh, and I have to put in a word for the other end of the spectrum. We sometimes retire our older people and we, they, we're no, we no longer see our people in the 80s up there. We need to see them as they lead us. We need to hear their voices as well. And off topic, but important to say. Um, that, those are the things that come to mind. It was not a pre-prepared question for me. So I'm just speaking from things that have happened recently and things that I've thought about. Uh, does that get at what you're talking about? Absolutely. Yeah, let, me, let me ask one quick question, too, because I know we need to close and we're going a little bit long here. But one of the things that people are talking about today is, I mean, resilience, you've talked about trauma, and we've heard about being trauma-informed and more. So uh, last question, how might we think about children who have walked through traumatic experiences, and how might we minister to them well, recognizing that our, our roles are not psychiatrists or psychologists, but, but we do have a role. Right. Talk to us about that. The most basic answer to that question is... A child who knows a God who loves them, who is in the business of restoring justice, who is in the business of healing. Um, if they know a God like that, that is the most powerful resilience armor that there is. And that's the bottom line for me. Even if you don't have some of those other resilience factors, capable parents or good communities or individual uh character traits like uh, self-advocacy, some of those other key resilience factors. If you know a God who knows you, gives you unconditional love, and you can say, I am a child of God, that can hold you if you have nothing else going for you. That can be the factor, the bottom line factor. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to Dr. Holly Catter and Alan want to encourage you to grab her book, Forming Resilient Children, The Role of Spiritual Formation for Healthy Development. And thanks again for listening to the Sets of Church Leaders podcast. You can find more interviews like this one and other great content for ministry leaders at churchleaders.com slash podcast. And again, if you found our conversation today helpful, we'd love for you to take a few moments to leave us a review that'll help other ministry leaders find and benefit from our content more easily. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you in the next episode. You've been listening to the Stetzer Church Leaders podcast. 
For more great interviews, as well as articles, videos, and free resources, visit our website at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.